If you're visiting with us today for the first time, we're in a series through uh, the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And uh, this morning we are in Romans 11, 25 to 32. It's our tradition to read the scripture together. So let's stand and do that as we enter in. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. This is God's word. You may be seated. Two weeks ago, we looked at Paul's allegory of the olive tree, which represents Israel, the people of God. Paul has concluded that allegory. The root of the tree is the patriarchs, the the forefathers, particularly Abraham, with whom God entered into a covenant of blessing by faith. Uh, Paul has indicated that Jews who refuse to accept Jesus as their Messiah are like branches that have been broken off from that tree. But that God nevertheless possesses both the power and the willingness to graft them back into the olive tree if they do not persist in their unbelief. He's also pointed out that Gentile believers in Jesus are like a wild shoot that God has grafted into the olive tree. So you may have never thought of yourself as a wild olive shoot. There's a new dimension to your identity that you've just received. We, we have, in effect, been made part of the covenant people of God through faith in Christ. We're now supported by the same root as our, our Jewish brothers and sisters who have believed in Jesus. Before I get in further into this, I just want to say this is a, you're going to want to take notes this morning. This is a ponderous passage. <laughs> and this is not light stuff. This is not for the faint of heart or the weak of mind. Um, <clears throat> I hope that you'll really engage in this this morning. But Paul begins with this, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this Mystery, And I'm going to get into the mystery in a moment, but I want to begin with that opening phrase where Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight. There's a warning there. Uh, Paul's already in verse 18 warned the Roman Christians against arrogance, uh, a haughty attitude of superiority toward their Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, And... You know, we can look back and say, well, why would they do that? Well, just imagine how maybe you have felt sometimes towards other Christians. Uh, You know, you may say, well, you know, we've kind of got it together in in our church or in our denomination. And, you know, we're doing pretty good. And some of those other churches, they're hurting, you know. 
Um, and we might have this attitude of superiority. Wrong, wrong to do, but it's easy to do, isn't it? Because pride and arrogance just come to us pretty easily. In verse 20, he had warned them also against pride. So there's a theme here. And here in verse 25 now, he, he warns them against conceit, being wise in their own eyes. He doesn't want the Gentile believers in Jesus to consider that, that they somehow have a higher standing in relationship to God than the Jewish believers in Jesus. Uh, Instead, he wants them to maintain an attitude of awe and, and of humility and the simple awareness that, that their inclusion in the people of God is only by God's grace, appropriated by faith. We stand, Paul said earlier in Romans, he said, we stand in grace. That's, that's all it is. We, our only standing, our only claim is the, the grace of God. It's like that old hymn that they used to sing at the Billy Graham Crusades, just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me and that you bid me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I stand on that. I stand in his grace. So when we have false inflated views of ourselves, we may become prideful. And Paul knows that the antidote to arrogance and the doorway to humility is truth. And so he makes them aware of this mystery. This is his antidote, this mystery. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Well, what does he mean by mystery? Well, first of all, he's not talking about some secret insider information. He's not talking about something that's only known by the elite. In the New Testament, the word Mystery always refers to something which has always been true, but has been previously hidden, in which God now reveals at just the right time to just the right people. At the heart of God's mystery, Paul wrote to the Colossians, is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul expanded that view of the mystery to the Ephesian believers when he wrote, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Gentiles have been included in the olive tree. Here in Romans 11, Paul provides even greater insight into how this mystery now plays out. And what he tells them consists of three truths. And the first is that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. You might say, well, what? Why does this matter? What, why do we even have to think about this? Well, have you noticed that a lot of people are thinking about Israel these days? Have you noticed that every time you turn on the news, you, you can't help hearing about Israel? Israel, 2,000 plus years after Christ, is still at the center of the world. It still matters. It still plays a significant role. God is not done with Israel yet. Israel is at the center of God's agenda 
for history. And we ought to be paying attention as Gentile believers in Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. We ought to be paying attention to Israel. I said a couple of weeks ago, to love Jesus is to love Israel. Uh, There ought not to be ever an anti-Semitism amongst Christians. So he says here that a partial hardening has come upon Israel, or maybe some of your translations will say a a hardening in part. And what he's pointing to is that not all Israel has been hardened, but the majority, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Well, what does this mean? Paul already, I think, stated it in verses 7 and 8 when he said, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, which was a righteousness according to the law and not by faith. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And this word translated hardening is, is an interesting word. It comes from a root word that was originally, um, it originally referred to a particular kind of marble stone. And, and it became used figuratively for all kinds of hardness. And in this instance, Paul uses it metaphorically to refer to spiritual hardness, spiritual imperception, spiritual insensitivity, and an inability to perceive spiritual truth, an inability to tap into what God is saying, what God is revealing, what God is doing, and make sense of it. And Paul says here in verse 25 that this partial hardening has come upon, come upon Israel. We have to ask how and why. We just saw that in verses 7 to 8. Paul answers the how question. And there he says that the hardening came from God. Uh, A spirit of stupor from God. As uh, a kind of judicial action, if you will. The backdrop to his comments there in verses 7 to 8 was the fact that Israel was seeking to obtain righteousness through the law and not by faith. And in the same way, the question why seems to be answered there as well, because they insisted on pursuing righteousness through law-keeping, through rules. God again said, have it your way. Have it your way. It's remarkably similar to what we read clear back in Romans 1. Mankind refusing God's will, refusing God's way, insisting on our will and our way, and God responding by by removing his hand of restraint, removing his hand of protection. And, And the phrase that's repeated there is, God gave them up or God gave them over, He just, which means that he just allowed them to do what they wanted to do in the first place. He gave us up to our pursuit of sin, allowing us to, to experience the, the full extent of our depravity. And this giving up or, or giving over on God's part, Paul identifies in Romans 1 as the expression not of God's patience, not of God's tolerance, but as an expression of God's wrath towards mankind, allowing us simply 
to do what we want to do in our sin. But here Paul wants us to know that this hardening that's happened in Israel is only partial or or in part. Not only is it partial, but it's also temporary. Notice the the time markers here in in the latter part of verse 25. This, This hardening will remain only until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Well, when's that? I don't know. But here comes that word fullness again. It's, we've seen it before. It's the Greek word pleroma. And I take Paul's use of this word here to mean the full number or the full complement of those who from among the Gentiles are going to be saved, that are marked for salvation, that are among the elect. What Paul seems to be saying here is that during this time, when much or most of Israel remains spiritually hardened and continues to reject Christ as their Messiah. The gospel will continue to be preached throughout the world. And more and more Gentiles are going to hear the message and believe and be saved. And so while Israel's sitting here in hardness, the, the fullness of the Gentiles is coming in. And God knows when that moment is when the fullness of the Gentiles has finally come in. What Paul adds next here is surprising news, welcome news. He says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. You go, what? I mean, he was headed in a direction, and then he all of a sudden is like, whoops. Check this out. Before we ask other questions of Paul's meaning here, let's, let's clarify what this phrase, in this way, means. Some of your translations will just have the word, so. So all Israel will be saved. I use that in, in the title of this message. So, but it, it means the same thing, in the same way. In this way. So let's clarify what in this way means. First, in this way obviously includes the partial hardening of Israel. It's part of God's plan, part of his divine strategy. Secondly, in this way includes the ingathering of the fullness of the Gentiles by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world, to the ends of the earth. The third, in this way, includes God also making Israel jealous, because he talked about this earlier, God making Israel jealous by extending salvation to the Gentiles. Remember what Paul said in Romans 11.11, actually just a few verses ago, but in our experience a few weeks ago. Through, Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And you say, well... I remember, you know, trying to make people jealous in middle school and high school and playing little games, you know, playing little emotional games, trying to make people jealous. That's not what's in view here at all. You may recall that when we examined verses 1 to 16 of chapter 11, we saw this jealousy of the Jews as a productive jealousy because what it seemed that Paul had in mind was that the Jews, seeing the blessings of salvation being enjoyed by Gentile believers in Jesus would be made jealous in a productive way, in a, in a good way, a positive way, and reach out to Jesus to receive what he has to offer. 
And when they observe the, the greater joy, the greater love, the, great, the deeper peace that Gentile believers experience, you do, don't you? And when they see the kindness and the forgiveness that Christ followers extend to each other, they will want those things for themselves. And they'll repent of their sin and they'll turn to faith in Jesus. But there are other questions raised by what Paul says in verses 25 to 26. And among them is this, which Israel is to be saved? Which Israel? That is, who does Paul mean us to understand by his use of the word Israel? Because Paul, in his letter to the Romans, uses the term Israel on some occasions to refer to ethnic Israel. And other times, that is the the descendants of Abraham that would fit in his genealogy. But he also uses it to designate national Israel, Israel as a whole, the nation. So which one is in view here when he says all Israel will be saved? There are at least two legitimate possibilities, I think. There may be more. Two come clearly to my mind. One is uh, a position that John Calvin taught that the Israel in view in verse 26 is the entire people of God comprised of both Gentile and Jewish believers in Jesus so that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and the Jews have returned there will be one olive tree one Israel problem with that is that throughout Romans Paul has used Israel as I just mentioned, to identify either ethnic Israel or national Israel. So he's not probably talking about anything that involves the Gentiles. Second possibility is that Paul is describing only national Israel at this point. And this is, this is the view that I personally hold. It's okay for you to hold another view on this um, because... Uh, a lot of really good scholars disagree on this stuff. From an exegetical standpoint, that is from digging out from Scripture, it's hard to argue that hardened Israel in verse 25 and saved Israel in verse 26 in the same breath are not the same group of people. The pronouns used in the chapter, and I'm not going to go there because you'd be bored to tears, but but the pronouns in the, in the chapter also seem to point in that direction. And Paul was meticulous in his use of pronouns. He was very careful. And it just seems to make the, the most sense upon careful analysis, I think, that Paul is talking only about national Israel here. Talking about Israel as a nation, the whole of Israel. Well, what then specifically is being said about them? Or put another way, what does Paul mean when he says they will be saved? And you say, well, everybody knows that. No, no, you don't. <laughs> Earlier, Paul spoke of the, the broken branches, which are unbelieving Jews being grafted back in if they do not persist in their unbelief. But unbelief in what or in whom? To answer that question, Paul quotes from the Old Testament prophets. He says, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. 
And these two verses, verses 26 to 27, are actually a compilation of three verses, two from the prophet Isaiah, one from the prophet Jeremiah. And in citing those scriptures, Paul is making three points. He says, first, that a redeemer or a deliverer will come from Zion. This from Isaiah 59.20 is a reference and in context to the first appearing of the Messiah. As Isaiah is talking about the coming of Messiah, this would be his first appearance. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob, that is Israel, who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Secondly, when the deliverer came, Paul is saying, he would banish ungodliness from Jacob, that is, again, Israel. In Isaiah 27, 9, Isaiah prophesies the repentance from sin that would be the fruit of the Redeemer's atonement for their sin. There's atonement in view here. Atonement always involved sacrifice. The fruit of the Redeemer's atonement, the fruit of his removal of their sin, Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. And and if we were to read the whole context, we'd see that they're turning from idolatry and and destroying their idols and, and repenting in sackcloth and ashes. Third... There seems to be an allusion to God's promise of a new covenant with the house of Israel that's, that's found in Jeremiah 31, 33 that would include forgiveness. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I, notice, will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So taken together, the picture is this, that the deliverer would come from Zion, from Israel, from Jerusalem, would come to move his people to repentance, which would prompt God's forgiveness, fulfilling his covenant promise to his people Israel. In Romans 9, Paul began the chapter, you remember, by expressing his anguish, uh, the brokenness of his heart over the lost condition of his people Israel. Paul begins Romans chapter 10 by saying, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them that is Israel, is that they may be saved. In this latter part of Romans 11, it's hard to miss the clear realization that the salvation for which Paul prayed is salvation from sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Now you remember, may remember a scene if you know the book of Acts and the, the early history of the, the first church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles Peter and John were brought before the ruling council of the Jews in Jerusalem. And the Jews were a little peeved. They were a little annoyed. They were a little ticked off because Peter and John are preaching the name of Jesus, uh, proclaiming in him the resurrection from the dead. And in his reply, his response to, to their rebuke, Peter says, This Jesus 
as Jesus were preaching, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there, listen now what he says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else than Jesus. And if this is true, then it's clear that salvation comes to both Jews and Gentiles in the same way. So the only legitimate way, I think, of interpreting what Paul is saying in Romans eleven twenty six, is that all Israel will be saved through personal faith in the promised Redeemer, Jesus Christ. But what does all Israel imply? You say, oh, you're asking so many questions. But we have to ask the question. If all Israel is going to be saved, what does all Israel imply? It's not necessary for us to interpret the expression all Israel strictly. That is, Paul can't possibly be saying that, that every Jew without exception will confess faith in Jesus as the Messiah. But the expression all Israel recurs over and over again in Jewish literature, especially in the Bible, and it nearly always means the majority, the majority of the nation of Israel in this case. Theologian F.F. Bruce put it, it need not mean every Jew without a single exception, but Israel as a whole. The weight of prophetic scripture, and we've talked about this previously, seems to point in the direction of a mass turning of the Jews in the last days to faith in Jesus as Messiah. But Paul's language on this occasion allows for the possibility of a, of a steady trickle that grows into a stream, that grows into a mighty river, an expanding flow of Jews converting to faith in Jesus Christ, and that it had already begun in Paul's day. Now here's another question, and, and you may struggle to understand the relevance of this, but I hope that you'll take it to heart. The question is this, is it essentially anti-Semitic to attempt to evangelize the Jews? In other words, if they're only going to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ, somebody needs to be sharing the gospel with them. Somebody needs to be leading them to understand that Jesus is their Messiah. Anti-Semitism has once again popped up as a hot topic in our national dialogue. Have you noticed that? It's come up. And, and uh, I don't want to approach this issue politically because that's a black hole, but, but it's clear that the concept of anti-Semitism is part of our national consciousness these days. What I want to ask is whether... In the age of relativism, when all faith claims are regarded as equally valid and inviolable, that we would consider the attempt to lead Jews to faith in Jesus as an essentially anti-Semitic act. You might say, well, I've never thought of that. Let me ask this question another way. Does the Bible allow for the possibility that there are essentially two different salvation tracks. 
uh, one track for Gentile believers and and Jewish believers in Jesus, what we refer to often as Messianic Jews, and a second Jewish track for historical Israel that's rooted in God's covenant with them through Abraham. Would we be comfortable saying that God's intent is to save Israel through their own covenant without any necessity of believing in Jesus as Messiah? Let me ask it another way. How many olive trees did Paul describe in chapter 11? One, right? The cultivated olive tree of national Israel and the wild shoot of Gentile believers in Jesus is grafted into the one olive tree of Israel. As a result, we all who have trusted in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, now participate in the redeemed people of God. These are important questions for us as evangelical believers in the 21st century to be engaging. Because uh, how's your relationship with your Jewish neighbors? You know any? They're here. Listen to the words of N.T. Wright in his book, The Climax of the Covenant. The irony is that the late 20th century, in order to avoid anti-Semitism, has advocated a position, that is the non-evangelization of the Jews, which Paul regards precisely as anti-Semitic. In other words, to not evangelize the Jews, Paul would say, is anti-Semitic. It would be quite intolerable to imagine a church at any period which was either simply a Gentile phenomenon or consisted only of Jews. It's anti-Semitic because it's anti-loving to not show someone a way out of their sin when there is a Savior who has come and has atoned for sin. This is how another leader responded, John Piper. I doubt that any church that abandons the evangelization of the Jewish people can long keep the gospel. Because if you say Christ is not needed for justification with the Holy God, as a fallen sinner in Adam, you have destroyed the gospel. Therefore, churches that embrace a two-track theology will undermine the gospel and will quickly cease to be Christian churches. Amen? Paul ends with a final question, and and he actually didn't ask this question. I just put it in his mouth, but it's, it's kind of implied. How should... Gentile believers view Jewish non-believers? How should Gentile believers view Jewish non-believers? And here's what Paul says. He says, first of all, they're enemies. They're enemies. As regards the gospel, he writes, they are enemies for your sake. And so, there's a sense here in which Paul might be saying we should view them with realism. Uh, Paul understood this in his own experience. Before his dramatic conversion, you may recall, he was a persecutor of the church. He, he had sworn to destroy the church. He was a terrorist. Uh, Paul also understood this when he wrote to the Ephesian believers about a dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, especially between Jews 
and Gentile Christians. Jesus understood it. He said to his disciples, and so to us, if they hated me, they will hate you also. So they're enemies in regard to the gospel. The gospel brings a sword. It, it, it creates a division. But then he adds that they are loved. They're enemies, but they're loved. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So while we should view them with realism, we should view them also with deep affection. God loves Israel for the same reason he loves you. Because you're a knucklehead and somebody needs to love you. (laughs) That's actually not what's in my notes. He loves you because he is love. Apostle John said, we love because he first loved us. And in his love, he chose Israel. The Bible says not because they were great, but they were small and they were weak. He chose them not because they were a particularly righteous people, God's word said. They were rebellious and idolatrous, like you like me. He chose them in love. He chose them because he chose them. And he loves Israel, Paul says, for the sake of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and for the promises that he made to them. And those promises are what is contained in that word gifts, I believe, for the gifts, the promises And his calling, his choice, and his commitment to make Israel his people are irrevocable. When God decides something, when he declares it, when he promises it, he fulfills it. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So we've come now to the close of Paul's teaching on the current and future status of Israel. And notice how he finishes this section. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Let me rephrase that, because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. I love the way that Tim Keller summarizes these verses. He wrote that as Christians, we're to say to ourselves, I disobeyed God and refused to believe the gospel, and look at me now. Here I am a Christian, in part because the gospel reached beyond disbelieving Israel. So if God can reach me with his mercy through their disobedience, he can certainly reach them with his mercy through my faith. So what part might I play in his wonderful sovereign purpose for his ancient people?
Paul says, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Is Paul saying that everyone will be saved irrespective of their response to Jesus? Certainly not. God has consigned everyone to disobedience. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. That word consigned means bound. Being consigned to disobedience means being bound in a dungeon, as it were. Convicted, sentenced, incarcerated, awaiting final judgment in a place from which there is no escape unless someone would take your death penalty upon themselves so that the righteous judge could show you mercy. Paul wrote to the Galatians, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise could be given because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being kept as prisoners until the coming faith would be revealed. It is to those who transfer their trust, who believe in Jesus Christ, that God extends his mercy and his forgiveness, whether Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, young or old, male or female, and the end result of his grace and mercy toward undeserving sinners who reach out to him by faith. Will be hope, hope in this life and glory in the next. In the vision of heaven given to the Apostle John, he saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. To the Lamb. You may say today that... uh, You're one of those who is sitting in the dungeon. You don't know how to find your way out. Jesus is the way out. Faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's your ticket out. Trust in Him. Transfer your trust. I've been saying this over and over again. Transfer your trust from your morality from your religion, your religiosity, your good looks, your cleverness, your cuteness, your ability to wiggle out of a hard situation, your comparison to your neighbor whom you're a little bit more righteous than. Transfer your trust from all of that nonsense to the only one who can save you. There is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. And that's our invitation to you today. That's, that is the message that we proclaim in as many ways as we can say it. Week in and week out, day in and day out. That's the message of the gospel. And today, if you are 
waiting for someone to help you out of the predicament of your separation from God by your sin, I urge you to reach out to Jesus. Trust in him. The blood that he shed on the cross will never lose its power. It is sufficient for all of your sin for all time, past, present, and future. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you've not forgotten the Jews, your people whom you called, to whom you entered in, with whom you entered into covenant, that they would be your people, that you would be their God. And uh, Lord, we pray for the salvation of Israel, and we pray that you would show us here in in uh, this uh, this enclave here in the northwest where we're not uh, hit in the face every day with these things. Lord, would you please show us how we might be a part? But Lord, we know that uh, you call us to pray. And so we pray for those uh, in Israel that they would their eyes would be open, that spirit of stupor would be lifted, and that they would be able to see and hear and understand your love for them expressed through your son Christ, and that they would trust in him and be saved. Pray today for those who uh, may be hearing this message today, and whether uh, here in this room or online, uh, as they sit uh, in their car or at home or in their office, Lord, that uh, they might hear this message, hear the gospel, and trust in you so that their sins would be forgiven, their eternity would be secured. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.